You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, good morning, America. Welcome to A Veteran Story on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. Today, our guest is Ray Fordyce. Ray is an 8th Air Force historian and son of Captain R.B. Fordyce, who served three and a half years with the 8th Air Force Heavy Bomber Group in Europe during World War II flying B-17s. Ray worked as a ranch hand in Argentina, attended West Point, is a pilot, and eventually retired from a career in management with IBM and later Siemens, where he registered three U.S. patents. Today, Ray serves as chairman of the Cobb County Civil Service Board. Ray is the author of numerous published articles and essays about the air war in Europe and speaks on veterans and aviation-related topics around the country. He also was once a guest at and played the piano for a German World War II fighter group's reunion. That's got to be an interesting story. Today, Ray will give us an 8th Air Force mission briefing about his this exact date, 8 July 1944, and you will hear what you might have heard had you been there. Following that, he will describe a day in the life of an 8th Air Force bomber crew, how a mission unfolded, and the challenges they face. Ray, you with me there? I'm here. Okay, now first of all, Ray, I think everyone would like to know how in the world did you end up as a ranch hand in Argentina? How'd that happen? Well, as you might suspect, it involved a girl. Uh-huh. I had uh, I had met a girl uh, through my father's business dealings, and her father owned the la- largest ranch in B.A. province. I knew how to ride, and so for several summers, I worked down in Argentina as a ranch as a ranch hand, and I have subsequently visited that ranch and ran into a guy that I worked with about three years ago uh, with my <laughs> wife and got to ride again. All right, super good. All right, super good. And also, before we get into the mission briefing, you played uh, the piano at a German World War II fighter group reunion. Uh, you know, they were on the other side, right? <laughs> well, gee, that changes everything, Pete. <laughs> uh, what what wound up happening was uh, I was uh, in Madrid as an independent tourist. I was just touring. I was at the uh, had wandered into the uh, famous uh, Plaza Palace Hotel, and uh, I play the piano. And there was a Bosendorf piano in one of the ballrooms that I saw. So I quietly went in, began to play. It's an Austrian piano, very historic, very rare, and I began to play it. After a while, some gentlemen came up behind me. I thought I was getting busted, and they asked me, do you know how to play music to hear it in kind of an accent in English? And I said, uh, which I took to mean, can you play by ear? And I said, yeah, pretty much. And he said, if you've got a little time, would you come with us? And it was a Condor Legion um, Luftwaffe reunion in Madrid, Spain. Um, And um, they asked me to play their... Uh, which was very easy to play, very easy to pick up, catchy tune uh, called Flugführer, uh, Flight Leader, which was their, their group song, and uh, also two other songs, one of which was no surprise, uh, Lily Marlene. But the third thing they asked me to play was Haunting. They asked me to play Amazing Grace, really? the American Civil War, yes. And uh, I'll never forget that. It was a remarkable 
And by the way, for their uh, for Flugführer, they had about 30 verses, probably most of which not, would not bear translation among mixed company. <laughs> I understand. That, that's, that's a great story. Okay, Ray, it is time for our next mission over Nazi Germany. Let's start the briefing. <laughs> Good afternoon, and hello from Great Ashfield, Suffolk, East Anglia, England, home of the 385th Bombardment Group Heavy, United States Army 8th Air Force. The time is 14.04 hours Zulu, and I have been authorized by the Allied Joint Command, as well as the 8th Air Force, to provide you the following situation report for today, 8 July 1944. First, an overview of the general military situation at D-Day plus 32. In brief, the liberation of Europe is at or ahead of schedule. We have achieved several notable milestones over the past week and a half, and I'm going to briefly mention a few of them. Shortly after D-Day, General Bradley directed General Lawton Collins of the U.S. 7th Corps to proceed up the Contentin Peninsula with the intent of securing the port of Cherbourg to give us a deep water port. Along the way, uh, General Collins was able to overrun and capture several V-1 and V-2 installations, which pleased, I'm sure, the, the citizens of London no end. On 29 June, Nearly nine days ago, Cherbourg was liberated. Lieutenant General von Schlieben was captured and surrendered to General Collins. What was unfortunate was the Germans had, as expected, mined and wrecked the harbor. They had sunk water vessels in the channel as well as near the docks and dumped heavy equipment, concrete and the like, near the docks. In fact, they did such a complete job of wrecking that our intelligence reports that uh, Rear Admiral Henneke, who was in charge of the demolition, was awarded by Hitler personally the Knight's Cross. They anticipated, the Germans anticipated, that harbor would be out of service for years at a minimum and perhaps forever. Well, that was before United States Navy Seabees and Army combat engineers had a look, and they advised us that within a matter of weeks, we will have some limited operation at Cherbourg, and by fall, we should have nearly full operation at the port of Cherbourg. So that's very good news. On 3 July, merely five days ago, our Soviet allies to the east recaptured the historic crossroads capital of Belarusia, the city of Minsk. It had been in German hands since shortly after the commencement of Operation Barbarossa, Germany's invasion of Russia, uh, back in late June of 1941. Today, 8 July, long before dawn, 10 hours ago, in fact, Operation Charnwood commenced under direction of General Montgomery. Allied forces have already succeeded in crossing the rivers Ornit to the west 
and Odin to the east of Khan and are in the process of encircling Khan. In fact, parts of the city have already been liberated. We anticipate liberating Khan within the fairly near future. In short, Montgomery and Bradley are on the move. The Wehrmacht is in disarray. Now, supporting this has been the United States Army Air Force, the 9th Air Force for tactical missions, and the 8th Air Force for strategic missions. But the air support has been sporadic due to inclement weather, which has occurred with some frequency during the past month, D-Day plus 32. Now, I'm going to give you, speaking of that air support, here is an 8th Air Force operations report for today, 8 July. Today and yesterday, we have full uh, final mission reports. We have partial mission reports for today. But targets were a mix of strategic and tactical attacks. Now, let me define those two terms for you. Tactical attacks attack uh, occur at or near the point of an actual battle and they involve an influencing attempt for the course of battle. On the other hand, strategic attacks typically occur far from the front lines, and they are intended to deny the enemy's ability to wage the war in the first place by going after their war production, their manufacturing, their infrastructure, their fuel, etc., etc. 7 July, the 8th Air Force went after three general target areas with all three air divisions and 16 specific targets. Primarily, these were synthetic oil plants, aircraft assembly and engine plants, airfields, rail yards, and those were primarily in Germany, although a few targets were in France. Results were generally good. We had fair to good weather in target areas. We lost 37 bombers, six fighters. And we had uh, more than uh, nearly 400 of the bombers, or uh, better than a a quarter of the bombers, were damaged. I regret to say that we lost 18 killed in action, 19 wounded in action, and 344 men are missing in action. The Luftwaffe, we have 79 confirmed kills, as well as 21 probables and damaged. Today, 8 July... Mission number 460, we've gone after four target areas and ten specific targets, and operations are still underway. The targets have been vacated, but some aircraft are not yet back on the ground. Uh, Like yesterday, we had about 1,800 bombers and fighters, but today the the missions were primarily in uh, in France, uh, tactical missions. We were attacking bridges, tunnels, rail targets, and no-ball, or V1, V1 weapon sites, these ski ramp, launch ramps along the coast of France. It appears that fewer than half of our bombers have been able to bomb due to bad weather in the target areas, so the preliminary results are necessarily mixed. So far, we know that we've lost nine bombers and uh, one fighter, and we have several hundred of the bombers we know are damaged. There are six known killed, Uh, About 30 wounded in action, and more than 80 are missing in action. We have 20 Luftwaffe confirmed kills, and about another 20 probables are damaged. The 385th Bomb Group, where we are here at Great Ashfield, our operations uh, yesterday, the 7th of July, uh, were strategic. 
Uh, our target was Fock Wolf Factory and Airfield at Coleta, and the results were good to very good. We had 20 to 25 percent of our ordnance fell within the 1,000-foot circular margin from the main point of impact, and up to 75 percent fell within the 2,000-foot circular margin. We encountered moderate Luftwaffe opposition, and we encountered heavy flak. 32 aircraft were flown, all returned. 11 were damaged. We had five wounded in action, and we had the usual cases of frostbite. Uh, one of our aircraft, interestingly, half and half, B-17, was attacked by one of the brand-new Messerschmitt ME-163 rocket planes on the return. We managed to damage the rocket plane by half and half managed to damage the rocket plane, uh, and half and half was able to return. Today, 8 July, our target was tactical. It was in Conche, France, a road and rail junction. Mission launch, we flew 33 aircraft. All have returned. And all returning aircraft have been on the ground for about an hour and a half, returning at 1250 hours. One aircraft was damaged beyond repair. The aircraft name was Swinging Door, and 10 other aircraft were damaged. No loss of life by our crews. However, regrettably, when Swinging Door landed with no hydraulic pressure and therefore no uh, flaps or brakes, it skidded off the runway across the hedges and across the road into a farm uh, adjacent to the uh, airfield and regrettably killed two farmhands at the, uh, uh, at the uh, farm. We encountered minimal Luftwaffe opposition, moderate to heavy flak, and uh, we had uh, great help today from our little friends, our fighter escorts. If on 8 July 1944, at this exact moment, 14, 14 hours Zulu, you had heard a briefing, you might have heard something exactly like that because that is the way that it was, 8 July 1944. So, now, go ahead. Okay. It's time for our first break. Ray, stand by just a minute. All right. Uh, rejoin us, please. Great, great stuff, Ray. Thank you. And I must add to that, yes, it is. It's uh, very interesting, and uh, it uh, makes you feel like you're uh, sitting in the, the wardroom ready to uh, go get in your plane. Uh, I want to thank... Uh, uh, Pete's guest, he's doing one heck of a job. And I wanted to take this opportunity to thank everybody that has, is, has and is supporting us through our uh, patronage or our patron program. You can go to our homepage and sign up to give 5, 10, 20, 50, whatever you want to do. Uh, and this supports the shows like Pete's and many other veteran shows that we do. With that being said, I want to remind everybody that Downtown Atlanta has the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and it, their director is Rick White. He does one heck of a job on lining up shows uh, for David's Pick on Thursday, which are all basically all veteran-type shows. And uh, Rick works closely with us. Also, want to remind everybody that the Johns Creek Healing Wall is open for visitors, uh, basically 
seven days a week. You can go over there. Uh, you need to. Whoops. Uh, watch your uh, watch your time for going over there. But uh, the JC, in, it's in Newtown Park, uh, Johns Creek Healing Wall. This was a this is the replica, fifty percent size of the Vietnam Veterans Wall in Washington D.C. So both great opportunities uh, to heal as a matter of fact and that's what a lot of folks do and uh, uh, very pleased that uh, they've got it going after some damage and uh, uh, Mike Mazel again he's the director and um, president of the JC Veterans uh, Vietnam Veterans Association and he does one heck of a job so we're going to take uh, we're going to do an ID right quick and then we'll come back to uh, Pete and his guest and find out where we're flying. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Okay, guys, uh, Pete, coming back to you in three, two, one, and it's yours, Pete. Okay, we're back in England, 1944. We're going on a mission over Germany. Great. Continue with the mission briefing, sir. Quote, Consider yourself dead. Some of you won't come back from this. Some of you will, but you will be the lucky ones, unquote. That is an actual statement from the briefing officer of the 97th Bomb Group to B-17 Navigator Lieutenant Mike Scorsio before a mission to Germany. I'll describe now a day in the life of these heroes, our heroes, these men of the greatest generation. Understand that there's no real starting time for the mighty 8th Air Force each day. But this is the sequence of events that we, we saw repeated day after day for years until the Third Reich was defeated. Now, the times I mention here are just an example, and they'll vary from day to day, from season to season. For example, sunrise uh, during the summer months can occur as early as 345 0345 hours or during the winter as late as about 8.15 so the, the mission launch times and mission durations might vary and the mission itself from takeoff to return landing might last as long as 10 hours or even longer so here we go before a mission things start rolling the day before 1700 hours Bomber Command in High Wycombe, which is 40 miles outside London, issues a command to air divisions, to the concerned air divisions, it could be all three, as to the target areas and objectives for the next day. They might be deep inside Germany, and often, and especially during 44 and 45, included many specific targets in multiple target areas. In many cases, again, all three air divisions were engaged typically assign different target areas. And then these orders are transmitted to the air divisions. Consideration uh, by Bomber Command was given to direction taken from Supreme Allied Headquarters uh, as well. Uh, during the D-Day invasion, I might mention 8th Airport, the bombers flew tactical missions in support of the landing. As an example, on D-Day, the 385th Bomb Group flew three missions, 82 sorties, 
extraordinary for a heavy bomber group. Also taken into consideration were current and recent missions performed, results previously achieved, opposition encountered, and very importantly, the losses we incurred. This would enable Bomber Command to determine what we needed to do based upon anticipated resources, bombers, escort fighters, and air crews that might be available. Also, beginning in 1944, early in 1944, coordination with the RAF targeting overnight bombing performed. So we're bombing them in the day, and they may be bombing the same target the night before or the night after. 20 hundred hours. Air Division has already received their, uh, their uh, directive, and they determine the resources that they need to achieve those stated objectives. An action plan is developed, which further refines the resources needed, which combat air wings, that is, and determines the logistics for insertion into the bomber stream for the coming attacks. This is where the order of battle is determined and results in a combat order. 2,300 hours. A combat order is received by the affected combat air wings for the coming mission. At combat wing command, once again, resources are determined. That is, which bomber groups assigned. And the order of battle is defined for each participating bomber group. Things like communication signals and codes are provided, and the mission alert is sent down to the concerned groups. 130 hours. The mission alert is received by the affected bomber groups, and each headquarters staff then determines which bomber squadrons will be engaged and assigns takeoff positions, departure, formation, and rendezvous times, navigation coordinates. This is a mission plan which will be detailed at the briefing of each assigned group. These communications were usually received by the group via teletype, and the the mission alert literally becomes a yard-long message. While this is taking place, orders are being given to the ground crews to provision the aircraft. This is not only fueling and arming, but also selecting and loading the appropriate ordnance. Now, we had used several types of bombs with the 8th Air Force. Most commonly, the GP, or general purpose bomb. This was a compromise between blast damage, penetration, and fragmentation in explosive effect. They were designed to be effective against enemy troops, vehicles, as well as buildings. Alternatively, high explosive bombs were particularly effective against troop formations, or fragmentation bombs might be used against hardened targets, such as submarine pens, or incendiary bombs designed to cause fire. Those could be loaded, and they're loaded by the ground crew based upon the mission. 0245. Ground crews, pardon me, are provisioning the aircraft, and squadron air crews are being awakened by group headquarters staff and begin preparing for the arduous day ahead. They did not set alarm clocks because if they didn't have a mission, those crews were able to keep sleeping. Instead, enlisted men came around and gently awakened them after firing up the heaters and lighting the uh, furnaces in their quarters. After dressing, the crews would head to the mess hall for breakfast. 0315, they're having breakfast. Crews often knew that a particularly difficult or lengthy mission was in store by what they were served. Steak and eggs was usually a dead giveaway of bad news at the coming briefing. 0350 hours. At the briefing, air crews learned 
of the mission. Now, a lot of us watch late night, Saturday night war movies. And contrary to what we might have seen on a late night war movie, the briefing did not have the wise-cracking, bubblegum-chewing tail gunner with his baseball cap cocked sideways in the audience. Only officers, pilots, co-pilots, navigators, bombardiers were present at the briefing. The mission plan was described in detail, and an effort was made to apprise the enemy, pardon me, to apprise the crew of the anticipated enemy opposition. And they did this with maps of known flak concentrations. However, where there wasn't flak, the Luftwaffe was the peril. And the Luftwaffe, as our veterans well know, was very formidable until the very end of the war, even though they had largely been attrited by our efforts. 0450, air crews start to make their way to the aircraft. Most rode in trucks or jeeps. Some chose to walk. Once aboard, the men began to check and recheck their equipment, machine guns, radios, intercoms, oxygen. The pilot and co-pilot might still be outside having last-minute conversations with the ground crew as they complete their pre-flight walk around. Pete, you want to take a break now? Yeah, we can go to break now, Ray. Uh, Very, very interesting. Uh, Folks, we'll be right back. This is our uh, next break. Okay, I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in today and want to thank those that have become patrons on America's Web Radio, and we certainly do appreciate them. And I want to remind everybody one more time that uh, Georgia is really turning into a veterans memorial and museum-type spot of the country for not only Vietnam but uh, other wars. And uh, it begins with a tour of the Georgia Military Hall of Fame that's in downtown Atlanta, right in the Floyd Building, right across the street from the state capitol, the Golden Dome. And if you go down to the Floyd Building, make it a day tour with your family and help your kids understand what a hero really is. They also have a great restaurant there, and you can make a a full day of it and take off and have lunch as well. So keep that in mind, and then you can come out to uh, Peachtree Corners. They have a great memorial to uh, our Vietnam veterans. Then, not too far from there, is the Johns Creek Healing Wall, and you're certainly invited to go to that anytime. And uh, we appreciate all the people that uh, volunteer their time and uh, give to all of these great reminders of what a true hero is. And those are the ones that raised their right hand and took the oath, like many of us did, and... uh, I, we salute them all the time at America's Web Radio. So with that being said, we're going to uh, go back to Pete and his guest and find out more about this mission right after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, okay. we're aboard the B-17. Get us into the air, sir. Okay. The crews are aboard the aircraft at 0450. And at 04, pardon me, at 0530, a two-pronged red flare is fired and from the center of the field adjacent to the runways. <clears throat> this is a signal to start engines. 
Occasionally, an engine would fail to start, and that aircraft would have to scrub the mission. 0545, taxi into position for takeoff. And it took a while to do that because they would taxi from the dispersal areas uh, in, in a takeoff order line. It wasn't a quick process. And several squadrons, typically three, would be involved. So there would be dozens of aircraft. 0610, final engine run-up by each aircraft to ensure everything's operating properly, and occasionally an anomaly here would be detected, resulting in an abort by that aircraft. 0620, headquarters staff receives the final go authorization, and a green flare is fired from the control tower, signaling that takeoffs were to commence. The bombers now commence their takeoff rolls at 30-second intervals. Takeoffs would often actually occur well before dawn, during a period known as nautical dawn twilight, which can begin as much as an hour or more before sunrise, depending upon the time of year. And this is a time of, uh, this is a, a period when the sun has reached a position below the horizon, even though it's not sunrise, but it's illuminating the sky. So aircraft can see each other when they're aloft. However, sometimes that visual contact would be difficult until clearing the fog or the cloud cover, even on, on uh, uh, late morning departures, presenting significant collision hazards well after dawn. I would point out that roughly one-fourth of 8th aircraft bombers lost during the war were lost to non-combat events, most typically air-to-air collisions. I can tell you, as a pilot, that taking off in an aircraft is always one of the most dangerous parts of a flight, and the most dangerous part if you're not in combat. That's when the aircraft is heaviest, maximum fuel and payload, and upon becoming airborne is flying very slowly. Any problems on the takeoff roll, or even shortly after takeoff, while still at low altitude and low speed, can be catastrophic. Speed and altitude are the pilot's friends, particularly if you're in a fully laden bomber with tons of high explosives. 0638, the final mission bomber is aloft with 30 seconds separation. The aircraft begin to assemble and proceed to a racetrack staging area southwest of the coast of England, in this case for the 385th Bomb Group, and from there at a designated time they would would, uh, proceed to an assembly point where they would proceed to insert themselves into the bomber stream. This whole process from taking off into getting into the bomber stream might take several hours. Long before the crew encounters the enemy, however, they must deal with three dangers, any one of which can be a killer. The weather, bitter cold, oxygen starvation. Whenever I fly any place today, I board the airliner and I look into the cockpit. The FAA lets cockpit doors be open while boarding. And what I see amazes me, again as a pilot, full-color 3D maps showing not only geography but weather, digital instrumentation, GPS, fly-by-wire, intergalactic displays. I refer to modern cockpits as Tokyo by night. And if you've ever been to Tokyo, you'll understand what I mean. Well, let me tell you, that's not what the office of our air crews in a B-17 saw. It was 2D. It was black and white. It was hydraulic and mechanical muscle and sweat. Those of you who've been to England know that an overcast sky is pretty common. And when our boys were taking into that overcast day after day, when that pilot forwarded the throttle to full military power for takeoff, then at eight or 900 feet, 
eased back to 85% power to a three and a half degree climb, he had to hope. No, he was praying that the 85% and seven and a half degrees on those imperfect indicators on the bomber 30 seconds in front of him and 30 seconds behind was identical. Otherwise, it was an entirely possible a collision would occur, and they did regularly. While they're climbing, the temperature's dropping. Remember last year in February when uh, they had record cold in the Midwest? Chicago, 15 below. Minneapolis, 20 below. Duluth was showing 50 below. Zero wind shell factor. Who could survive such cold? The news programs were all saying, stay indoors, bundle up. Well, let me tell you about cold. While these bombers are climbing to their combat altitude of up to 31,000 feet, the outside temperature is dropping with the gain in altitude. Now it might be 40 below zero and going down. The windshield and plexiglass nose are getting frosted over. So the cockpit windows on those bombers are opened to equalize the temperatures because these planes were not pressurized, nor were they heated. Oh, and by the way, the three-and-a-half-foot-by-four-foot windows on the sides of the bomber for the waste gunners, they were always open at 40 below, and sometimes 50, and even sometimes 60 below zero. Anybody ever wonder what the wind chill factor might be at 170 miles per hour and 50 below? The third danger, oxygen starvation, is very real. Men at extreme altitudes had to breathe oxygen, and sometimes those bottles would malfunction, sometimes a rubber tube would get severed by enemy action, or even one of the sharp surfaces in the aircraft. Lack of oxygen, typically death was in a matter of minutes. These dangers were inherent long before they saw the enemy, and while they were engaged, and these men of the greatest generation did this every day for years. Would you? Would I? 0905, the appro- formation approaches the European coastline. Prior to the D-Day landings, numerous Luftwaffe airfields were scattered throughout France and the occupied countries. This enabled them to intercept our bombers, follow them in, all the way in, and sometimes they would even attack the bombers on the return after refueling and rearming. And prior to December 43, when we began to have the long-range P-51s, full mission fighter support was very rare. So the bombers were on their own for a significant portion of the mission. By now, the formation is in a defensive formation, the combat box, which could, which could mass defensive fire at intercepting fighters. Whether or not there was fighter escort, the Luftwaffe always made its presence felt. Whenever the bomber formation was over enemy territory, Messerschmitt BF-109's Focke-Wulf FW-190 opposition was expected. It might be nearly continuous during 1943. The activity would be generally absent were there flak concentrations, obviously, because they didn't want to get themselves shot down. <coughs> when the 8th began making attacks early in the war, losses from the Luftwaffe were often unsustainable. The 8th had a factor of 5% as being a sustainable loss rate. Some missions suffered as much as a 40% loss rate, including aircraft that were shot down or damaged beyond repair. And this put great pressure on the 8th as well as the air crews. Losses from the loop were much greater from flak than from flak early on, but as the war progressed, it switched. 
And that's a result of several factors. Beginning in early 44, Allied fighters would engage the Luftwaffe and restrict their access to the formations. Numbers of, uh, of available Luftwaffe fighters due to attrition and fuel shortages. Also, significant improvements in the flak batteries themselves as they were migrating from optical and acoustic sensing of the formations to radar training, as well as large caliber cannons from 88 to 105 to 128 millimeter cannons. And lastly, massively increased production of those weapons because it was very cost-effective relative to aircraft. <clears throat> Late in the war, we saw advanced jet and rock, rocket aircraft as a rude shock, but fortunately, there were too few and they were too late. By 0915, 0930 at the latest, any Allied fighter support before 1944 is peeling away, and the bombers are now truly on their own. The next three and a half hours <clears throat> will be pure hell. At 1050, the IP, or the initial point, is reached, and that's where the bombardier and the Norden bombsite basically take control of the aircraft. The IP was usually selected by the weatherman based upon predicted winds. The Norden bombsite was pretty accurate, flying into or with the wind, but not so much dropping in a crosswind. So the run from the IP to the aiming point, or that is where we're going to drop the bombs, is hazardous, as now the bomber formation is flying in a predictable fashion, straight and level, and it didn't take long for the Wehrmacht to pick up on this and it greatly facilitated their defensive fire with their flak batteries as the speed, altitude, and direction of the bombers was now known. A couple misconceptions. Flak batteries did not aim at the formations, rather they used predictive fires, that is, firing where the formation will be in a certain period of time. And that's because when that 20-pound shell from an 88 flak gun was fired, it would take anywhere from 12 to 25 seconds to get up to the appropriate altitude for detonation. And heavy bombers could be anywhere from 22 to 31,000 feet up. So the batteries would aim at an imaginary patch of sky where the flak explosions were predicted to coincide with the arrival of the formation. And they didn't need to hit an airplane. A detonation within 100 to 200 feet could inflict significant harm, severing controls, hydraulic lines, damaging or disabling engines, piercing the thin metal skin of the bomber and wounding or killing crews. And if a shell did strike an aircraft, it was invariably catastrophic, nearly always resulting in the loss of the entire crew. 11.05. The aiming point is reached and the bombs are released. Photographers in lead and trailing aircraft of each formation take photographs of the target area for evaluation Upon return, each aircraft, relieved of its load of bombs, now is surging upward. Now the pilot and navigator turned to head for the rendezvous point, or it became known as a rally point, where the remaining bombers would reform into defensive formations for the dangerous trip home. During the next 90 minutes, damaged aircraft or stragglers would often be cherry-picked by marauding Luftwaffe fighters. The arrival of full-mission fighter support in '44 greatly increased the chances of these crews <clears throat> excuse, to make it back. Allied little friends began to appear around 1240 or so as contrails above and in front of the returning bombers. 
Luftwaffe opposition begins to fall away. 1300 over the English Channel, homing in on Great Ashfield, the home field for the 385th. Aircraft that have wounded aboard begin to move into the lead to land first. 1325 hours at Great Ashfield, ground crews anxiously scan the skies for the returning squadrons. As they spot the first B-17s, the counting begins, and the ground crews are praying that as many aircraft return as departed. Too frequently, we know this was not the case. 1330, the first aircraft is on final approach, and a red flare is fired from the waist gunner position. As it arcs into the air, an ambulance begins to roll, racing after the landing B-17, as there are now known to be wounded aboard as the bomber slows and turns off the runway onto the grassy turf. The ambulance is now next to the bomber, and as the bomber stops, the ambulance is literally beside its door. 1350, the last of the returning aircraft are on the ground, some still taxiing to the dispersal areas. Crews are beginning to wearily climb out of their aircraft and are met by trucks and jeeps. Ground crews are already surrounding the park planes and determining what miracles they will need to perform to get them back into the air. Pete, if you want to take a break now, we can do that. Okay, Ray, thank you very much. We will go to our last break, ladies and gentlemen. Um, We'll be right back. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, Ray. Okay. Okay. 
At 13.50, we know that the last of the aircraft are on the ground. And uh, by 14.20, in the briefing room, the crews are being interrogated about the success or the failure of the mission. At the same time, photographers aboard the aircraft are hurriedly taking their precious films to their dark rooms for development and analysis. As this is happening, sandwiches, mugs of coffee, hot chocolate are being brought in for the crews. Some intelligence information, such as if they spotted convoys or plane crashes, that's called hot news, and it's immediately phoned in to Air Division for action. 1530 hours. The base commander has completed a tactical report, and it, along with photographs of the strike, are delivered by parachute to wing 45 minutes later. 1645. Reports of the mission are received by Bomber Command. Depending upon when they are actually received, they may influence targeting for the following day. Losses incurred always influence the coming mission assignments. By now, the men have started filtering into the mess hall for dinner and then back to their quarters to collapse into their bunks. Because tomorrow, they got to get up and go out and do it all over again. You may ask, did any of this really make a difference? After all, there are some historians who find it fashionable to say that the Soviets, the Russians, they won the war. After all, they suffered the greatest number of casualties, both military and civilians. They also got the greatest commitment of troops from the Germans. And the Germans, well, they suffered most of their casualties there. So, obviously, the Soviets were the ones that won the war. So say these historians. To this assertion, I have one word. Blather poop. One reason the Germans committed so many troops to the Eastern Front was because that front was as much as 2,000 miles long. We're talking concentration of forces. On D-Day, the front was at most a few dozen miles, and the Western Front never remotely approached the size of the Eastern Front. Another big reason, and perhaps the major reason, was because the Germans and Russians were fighting each other almost in a World War I type of fight. It was purely tactical. It was a meat grinder. They were throwing thousands of men and tanks up against each other because neither of the Germans nor the Russians had any strategic bombing capability. They viewed their air forces as adjuncts to ground action. So neither had the ability to marginalize their enemy's ability to keep on fighting in the first place. But, ah, the Russians did have a strategic component. It was called the 8th United States Army Air Force. And it was pounding every day Germany's ability to produce the weaponry, the tanks, the planes necessary to continue the fight against the Soviets, or us with any hope of success. Tank and aircraft production, communications, fuel refining, delivery, all of them were being clobbered every day. If you doubt this, consider this. By late 1943, and this is from German documentation, 
40% of the German economy was dedicated to stopping the bombing. They were getting the message. In case you missed it, that was 40%. And that's not 40% of the war effort. That's 40% of the economy. Remember, the war effort is a subset of the economy. What was left, the other 60% went to, first, the economy stuff. Things like food production, transportation, medical care, power generation, communications, infrastructure, repair, rebuilding. Oh, yeah. And then there was that still, that other war stuff. You know, tanks, guns, U-boats, armaments production, naval operations, secret weapons, training recruits, the Atlantic Wall, which was, by the way, the largest building project in history from Scandinavia to Spain, the Western Front, the Italian Front, and oh yeah, oh yeah. Then there were those pesky Russians. Blather poop. But it came at a price. The 8th Air Force had more than a third of a million soldiers, about 350,000, of which about 200,000 were air crew. Casualties during World War II by branch were as follows. The Army, taken as a whole, a little over 2%. The Marines, a little less than 3%. The Navy, taken as a whole, less than 1%. Now, Navy submarines had a relatively high loss rate. We lost 52 subs, that is 18% of our subs, and casualty rate was about 13.5% of the men who served aboard subs. The Army Air Force, as a whole, was 3 two, three, four, five times as great as the other services, about seven and a half percent. But if we look at Army Air Force air crews worldwide, the casualty rate worldwide was 27 percent. But what about in Europe? During World War II, one in three airmen survived the air battle over Europe. The losses were extraordinary. The casualties suffered by the 8th Air Force were about half of all of the Army Air Force casualties around the world. And remember, the 8th Air Force was just one of 16 numbered Army Air Forces, and they suffered half the casualties. I would point out that there are memorials honored and tendered graveyards even museums throughout the liberated countries of Europe. <clears throat> in the town of Perlay in Luxembourg, every year they have a ceremony in the center of town where a fountain was dedicated to the 8th Air Force and, yes, the 385th Bombardment Group because of its efforts to liberate Luxembourg. The reason for that, because after a bombing mission into German lines, two aircraft collided over Perlay, and all but two of the crew lost their lives on the two aircraft. Those two crew members, even though the even though uh, Perlay Luxembourg was still occupied by the Germans, they were hidden at great risk by the Luxembourgers, and they have never forgotten 
the 385th, there is a museum in Perlay. There are a number of museums throughout England and elsewhere in Europe commemorating the 8th Air Force. They have not forgotten the sacrifices of the greatest generation. Have we? Pete? I don't know, Ray. I think we have. It's not even taught in schools anymore about World War II. You might have a page or two at the most, maybe a paragraph about World War One. Right. Uh, the great generation saved, saved all of us from either speaking Japanese or German for the rest of our lives. Now, let me ask you this, Ray. Uh, uh, tell the folks a little bit about the uh, two heavy bombers used by the 8th Air Force, the B-17 and the B-24. Uh, both of them were excellent aircraft. Uh, about uh, nearly 13,000 B-17s were produced during the course uh, of the conflict, and uh, more than 18,000 of the B-24s. It was the most prolifically produced aircraft, actually, in the United States. B-17 was originally designed, actually, for a design competition by Boeing uh, back in the early 30s, uh, the Model 277, they called it. And... Um, it went through a series of modifications, and I promise you that uh, by uh, 1945, if you looked at a, uh, uh, a B-17 Model G with its turret, uh, massive firepower, additional firepower that it had, versus the earliest versions of the B-17, you would see very little resemblance other than four engines. Even the tails were different. Cockpits looked different. Everything looked different on the aircraft. It was continually refined. It was an extremely rugged aircraft. Well, why then was the B-24 produced in greater numbers? Well, it was kind of a favorite of the general staff uh, back in Washington who weren't flying these airplanes. It, had, it was a later design, designed in 1937. It had a then-revolutionary wing design called the Davis Wing. It was a long, thin wing, and the aircraft was designed with weight-saving in mind. It had a longer range than the B-17, and it could typically carry a greater bomb load. It was slightly faster than the B-17. However, B-17 was able to fly at a much, much higher altitude. It had a service ceiling of up to around 32 or 33,000 feet, which was five, six, seven thousand feet higher than a B-24. It meant they could get further away from the flak, and in fact, the B-17 was able to fly at an altitude greater than some of the early models of the BF-109 Messerschmitt fighter. Uh, so it was able to actually, in some cases, stay out of the uh, altitude range of the German fighters. It was extremely rugged. There are countless photographs that probably all of us have seen of B-17s that came back. You wouldn't imagine how they could even stay in the air, let alone bring a crew back. And often they would bring a crew back with the, the pilot only, able to see out of a sliver of the cockpit, half the nose blown off by a 30-millimeter cannon shell, and, but it still made it back. The B-24 was much more fragile, and it was the aircraft of for the Luftwaffe when there were missions where B-24s and B-17s were in proximity. Why? Easier to shoot down, and also it was uh, typically carrying a little bit bigger bomb load, more bang for the buck. 
it was popular also uh, worldwide because of its longer range. This was particularly important uh, in the CBI, the China-Burma-India Theater, as well as the Pacific. So it made sense. It was a good airplane, make no mistake about it. Uh, but for the European theater, the B-17 was the vehicle of choice. Both aircraft were similarly powered, different types of engines, but both had uh, four 1,200-horsepower engines. Yeah, B-17 was a, a gorgeous aircraft, too. It well was. Uh, I did uh, talk to the pilot of a B-24 that landed at Falcon Field out at East Tree City one time. I said, how does this thing fly, this B-24 Liberator? He said, it's like flying an 18-wheeler with 18 flat tires. Yep. <laughs> In fact, that was one of the uh, things that pilots had mentioned, uh, and I have spoken to many pilots, compatriots. In fact, in some cases, it knew my dad. Uh, that the B-17 was extremely stable in flight, which enabled it to fly tighter formations than the B-24. The B-24 tended to wander in flight. It wasn't as stable. And if one of the twin horizontal stabilizers was damaged, or one of the engines, particularly one of the outboard, the one number one or number four engines were were disabled, it became a real handful for the pilot to keep okay. it level and uh, and in the air. The, the uh, B-17 was much more forgiving to damage and even much more forgiving uh, uh, under normal circumstances. A real sweetheart to fly. Yeah, how did the, when did the uh, German jets uh, first appear and how did we fight those things? They were uh, Pete, we're, Pete, I'm sorry, okay, we're out of time. We're going to have to go they on. They actually began to appear uh, back in uh, the summer, late summer of 1942, uh, we began to see the German jets. Now, what is interesting about that... Pete, we're totally out of time. I'm going to have to thank your guests, but we've got to move on. Uh, we only have okay. less than a minute okay. to go. So thank you all, job, and uh, we'll be back you. next week with a veteran's story. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.